Well, before we get rolling today, uh, I'm going to read to you from Romans 8, verses 34 through the end of the chapter. It says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angel, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow, that looked coordinated, didn't it? We moved around each other. It was like this beautiful dance. You guys don't realize that that's pretty much what BJ and I are doing in the office all week long, just dancing together and singing in the rain. <laughs> well, if you would turn with me this morning to 1 John chapter 2, we'll begin a new chapter in this letter, and uh, we'll continue on the thought process as Recognizing this is a letter, that means that yet again we're um, continuing without the, the idea of chapter breaks, even though we have chapter breaks, we added those. Uh, this being written to a church or a group of churches in the region of Ephesus, it's, it's good for us to remember that this thought process that, that John has had in chapter 1 is continuing on and moving forward as we go into chapter 2. And we, as we move on this morning from John's focus on the need for us to be honest with ourselves about our sin... And that through confession of the truth, we're restored by God's forgiveness. Because of the accepted sacrifice of Jesus, we move into a new chapter. And we begin this with something that in our culture would probably be a little bit insulting. And so I feel like we need to talk about it for just a minute as we begin. Because you'll notice this as you look at chapter 2. He starts off by calling us his little children. Now I don't know about you guys, but we, we need to be careful about not misunderstanding how he's addressing the people that he's writing to, because this isn't derogatory. This isn't meant to put them down or make them feel small or make them feel insignificant or less educated. As a youth pastor, I always go to that mindset. If I was at camp and some kid walked up and was like, listen up, little child, we'd probably have a problem. And I, I would have to adjust their way of thinking a little bit, probably on the sports field. <laughs> some of the guys are like, yeah, we remember. But now we're at that point where it's like, I'm not going to do any adjusting because you guys will hurt me. I'm not getting out there with you anymore. You're all grown up and big now. You guys understand this. When we read a letter um, that's quite possibly um, coming from the apostle who is the last apostle who saw Jesus in the flesh alive at this time. It's very possible that John's the last one of the apostles that saw Jesus in the flesh. And he's old. And he loves these churches. And he loves the second and third generation of believers that have come from people that he has had fellowship with for many, many years. He's writing this tenderly. He's writing it from compassion. He's writing because he cares. And as a father cares for his children, that's the heart behind what John's saying. It's not to belittle them. It's to let them know that he loves them like a father loves his children. 
This is the term of endearment that he uses. It's affection. Both in the Latin and the Greek, the diminutives of this word carry special affection. It's his heart that he's expressing. John's not scolding. He wants to tenderly address his church family with words of truth. And he's being honest and he's also being very affectionate in his approach to them. Notice that in the writings of John, and I think this is why I wanted to point out at the beginning of chapter 2, so emphatically that this term of little children is meant to give them a, a sense of endearment and compassion from him, is because what we're reading is very difficult to read at times. He's not being uh, you know, vague about what he's getting at. If you remember in chapter 1, you can look at it. It's right before this passage. He says, if if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. And sometimes we can hear that as being said harshly. That's a harsh thing to say. No, it's coming from a fatherly figure who loves these people, these churches, who he says are his little children. It's affection, it's care, it's tenderness. And so he's not saying it aggressively. And when it comes to being compared to little children, there's one more factor I think we should consider before we we get into our text this morning, which is all of two verses. (laughs) Everyone chuckles, oh boy. That doesn't mean shorter, that means longer for us. You know that already. There's something else we should consider with this. Spurgeon put it really beautifully. He said this. It's a bit much to put on the screen, but we'll put it up there anyway. Children are very apt to get into the mire. Most mothers will tell you, I think, that if there's a pool of mud anywhere within a mile, her firstborn joy and comfort will find it and get into it if he possibly can. No matter how often a child is washed, he seems always to need washing again. If there's a method by which he can foul his hands and his face, your pretty cherub is most ingenious to find it out. Have your parents ever called you pretty cherub? I Mine have not. He continues, I'm afraid this is too much the case with the children of God. There is so much of carnality about us, so much of the old Adam, that the question is not into which sin we fall, but into which sin we do not fall. And here's the crux of the issue. We look at this and we're like, oh, he's right. I fall into everything. I fall for everything. But the focus of John in this chapter is not to get our eyes on our failure. It's to remember who Jesus is. It's to remember how much he loves us and the position and the posture he has towards us, even in our failure. And so, as those, (laughs) you pretty little cherubs. (laughs) Now, you need to share that with your friends and family that that don't go to this church. Say, did your pastor call you a pretty little cherub today? Because mine did. I don't know, depending on your view of cherubs, that might be creepy. But you guys... Let's just say we're his kids. How's that work? For us, his little children, John, inspired by the Spirit, writes this. Read along with me. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This is our text for this morning. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Through what has been written and what he will write, if there's any way for him to prevent us from stumbling into that mud puddle, John seeks to prevent it. And he says that at the beginning as he says, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. I'm writing this to keep you out of trouble. Uh, a, A dear friend of mine years and years ago 
looked at me and said, you know, I feel like I really can't take people's advice for things. I can't take their advice for, you know, whether something works out well or not. He was talking about sin. He goes, I really feel like I just have to experience things for myself. And that's how I learn my lesson. I get into it and I learn my lesson. And I just shook my head and I was like, why? Why would you not learn from all those who came before you when they look and say, do you see that? That hurts. That hurts really bad. See, I didn't have good relatives as a kid. I had relatives that liked to watch me get hurt. And so they would tell me to do things that they knew would hurt me. Now you're like, okay, that's really terrible. No, it was always like, you know, grabbing a hot wire fence, um, going off that jump. You'll, you won't fall off the bike. You know, like all these types of things that they would tell me, like, Mike's just a daredevil. He'll just try it. He doesn't care if he breaks a limb. But you guys, you understand that like we have the scriptures, we have the word of God that says, do you see this? Don't do that. It ruins your life. Do you see this over here? Don't do that. It dishonors God. God didn't create us for that. And so John, as he writes these things, hear his emphasis behind them. I'm writing this to you, little children. I love you guys so that you may not sin. He's like, the whole desire and push behind what I'm writing is that you wouldn't fall into sin. And that's what a loving parent does. It's understood amongst believers that Christianity is ethical. And what that means is that we're, there are moral principles that God has established for us. There is right and wrong. There is definitive truth. There is absolutes. The problem is not with our ability to see that as Christians. The problem is that we're often ethical failures. That's what we struggle with because a lot of times we, we have these conversations amongst ourselves. Do you see that this is wrong? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, then why did you do it? I don't know. You know, we are little children. Isn't that what your kids would say to you? I said no. Uh-huh. Help me out here. Why? I don't know. Didn't think about it. Just didn't. You guys, we see and know the things that God expects of us, and then we fail at keeping those things. We are little children. We never outgrow being little children. And I love it when, when a lot of young people come of age and are like, I'm a man now. I'm, I'm going to make my own decisions. And, and all the parents go, oh boy. Why? Because we understand this. We understand that we're still in a battle with sin. We're still struggling with these things. And knowing this, John states clearly right after that, aren't you glad he didn't say, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, go and sin no more, right? Even though that's what Jesus said to the woman who was being condemned for his, her sin, he said, go and sin no more. But Jesus had to go to the cross because that woman's sinning days were not over. She wasn't going to cease to sin. He didn't want her to sin in that way anymore, but that doesn't mean that she lived a sinless life afterwards because Jesus forgave her in that moment. She's still living in human flesh. We understand this. Anyone don't understand is right afterwards, but if how many? Anyone. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have an advocate. You are not alone. Offered to anyone who sins. That would be us. John says Jesus is your advocate. He's not going to be an advocate. He is your advocate right now. When we fail, Jesus is our advocate. And notice the basis of his advocacy. He is righteous. He is perfect. 
Jesus is righteous. According to scripture, Jesus Christ was sinless, is pure, and is absolutely holy. He is the righteous one. He is the one who comes and advocates for us. Now, to help us wrap our minds around this concept, I think it'd be good to compare what an advocate is as opposed to an intercessor. It's important to look at the two because I think a lot of times we see different ministries of Jesus in the scriptures, and it seems like they're kind of the same thing. And I think it's fun for us to look at those terms and be like, okay, like, you know, and I, I tried this out. Of course, you know, the staff here at the church are my guinea pigs. So I walk around and go, can you define these two things for me? They're like, well, they're kind of the same thing. It's like, yeah, they are because they are overlapping ministries, but there are distinctions between Jesus, our intercessor and Jesus, our advocate. An intercessor or intercession has the idea of mediating between two parties, bringing them together. So it's someone who takes a mediator position in between two parties and is seeking to bring these groups of people together. In our case, it's Jesus mediating between us and God, bringing us to the Father by his sacrifice. So we see him in the middle position bringing the parties together. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, you're probably familiar with this. Therefore, he is, also, he is able, speaking of Jesus, to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus lives to make intercession for us and brings us close to the Father. That's pretty cool. What's equally as cool, and almost the same but a little different, is advocacy. Now, when you think about intercession, it's something that Jesus is always doing, bringing us together with God actively. And as we think about advocacy, the Greek words that's used to describe advocate here in 1 John 2, 1 is the Greek word parakletos. And it means advocate, but it, it also means a bit more. And if you've done any kind of Greek study, parakletos probably sticks in your head a little bit, not only because it's fun to say, like Francisco, but it's I know it's way after Christmas time. I shouldn't have done it. But it, it's not only fun to say, it has a, actually a really powerful meaning, not only in Greek literature, but especially if you know a little bit of New Testament Greek. And I'll explain that in just a minute. When you think about an advocate, advocacy is similar to intercession, but it has the idea within it of aligning oneself with another. Aligning oneself with another. How this works for us is that we remember that Jesus says, I and the Father are one right? Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We have the same, the same focus, same mind. They are, they are, you know, we understand the Trinity somewhat. (laughs) That's another fun thing to ask people to define. Define the Trinity for me. It's like, well, they're one, but different. Very true. But we understand this. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Then who needs the advocate? Who's being come alongside, so to speak? We are. We need someone to stand with us. And here's the context. Remember, Jesus accomplishes both intercession and advocacy. He stands between the two bringing together, but an advocate doesn't simply stand in between the two parties. He steps over and joins the one party as he approaches the other. Not only is he bringing us together, church, Jesus steps alongside us and brings us towards God. At specific times in our lives, he's both of these things. So how do we best understand the connection in real terms of the ministry of Christ in our lives? There are so many facets of this, and we're not going to get into all of them, but because it's here, I want to do diligence to this text. Intercession is something Christ is always doing. Advocacy is something he does as occasion calls for it. 
Intercession he's always doing. Advocacy is something he does when the occasion calls. When we recognized our sin and accepted Jesus as our Savior, he cleansed us from our sins and began interceding for us, bringing us closer to the Father as we're sanctified through the Spirit. But sometimes, as one commentator wrote, we sin big sins, don't we? We go down a little bit harder. You know the difference. You know the difference of thinking something about somebody in your head, maybe an angry thought, a little bit of bitterness, and you're like, Lord, uh, sorry. He's in our, he's mediating, he's bringing us together. And then there are sins that knock us down, aren't they? There are sins in our lives that knock us flat, that put us on the ground for a minute. Picture it as a parent. Your son is walking alongside you. I speak from personal experience. Your son's walking alongside you, and you know that, you know the difference between a trip and fall and a serious fall. Dads, most of the time, aren't as sharp as moms on this one. We think our kids should get up all the time. You know, they go down, and are like, if nothing's bleeding, you're not hurt. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. And we want them to keep going. So your son trips and falls as you're going for a walk with them. And it's not a big deal. You know the difference. Oh, you know, they just weren't paying attention. Shoes are tied together. Something happened. Some person tied their shoelaces together. I don't know who. But they go down, and you're like, come on, get back up, get back up. Come on, let's go. They catch up with you, and you keep going. It's very much like an intercession. You keep moving along. You're bringing him to, come on, here we go, here we go, here we go. Now, here's the next scenario. You're walking with your son. He trips. He rolls down a bit of a cliff and snaps his leg. Now we have an issue, don't we? Telling your son to get back up and, and come on, come on, just get, get up. Use one leg. You know, that's mean. That's inappropriate. Some parents are like, I've done that. So what does a good father do? pick him up and you take him to get help you take him to one of the many nurses that works here and they help you get a splint together right that's an advocate that's the ministry of advocacy do you see it spiritually as we will make mistakes and we stumble sometimes we sin in big ways And what John is saying to us, you guys, is like, I'm writing these things so that you don't sin. But if you do, we not only have someone who makes intercession for us. Jesus is our advocate. He comes alongside you. He picks you up. He helps you down the way. He helps you get right again. We understand this as parents, but I think a lot of times there's a disconnect between us and the ministry of the Lord in our lives as Father. Remember when we were going through our Advent series this last Christmas season. And we talked about how Jesus is referred to as eternal father. In Isaiah chapter 9, we talked about this. And and you guys, we shouldn't forget this. He is a fatherly savior to us. He is our advocate. When you go down, he's there with you in that. He's not just calling you to get up saying, I'm not moving. I'm over here. You need to get up and find a way. He doesn't do that. Jesus comes down into the muck and picks you up and carries us. Now, will he carry us like that forever? Like a good father, he's going to stay fun. I don't know why that popped in my head. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) He's going to help us get right. And he's going to get us up on our feet again and get us walking again, right? Ignore the state farm com- you know, comment. That's, you understand what I'm saying? You guys, 
This is why I said these ministries overlap because they are similar in nature but distinct from each other because Jesus' advocacy rears up when occasion requires it. And as parents or good friends or people who just care about other people, we get this, don't we? That sometimes it's not enough to send a message of encouragement. You have to go to that person. You have to go and you have to get involved. The situation requires it. Dane Ortland said it beautifully, the Bible nowhere teaches that once we've been savingly united with Christ, we will, grievous, we will find grievous sins to be a thing of the past. I'll say it again, the Bible nowhere teaches that once we have been savingly united with Christ, we will find grievous sins to be a thing of the past. Further in his writing on the topic, he goes on to say in regards to Christ being our advocate when we do sin, that he cannot bear to leave us alone to fend for ourselves. Jesus cannot bear to leave us there in that place. He comes to us. He comes to you when you're there. His ministry is within us at that time. And here's what I mean by that. We have to ask ourselves the question at that point. In real terms, in real situation, as we think about Jesus ministering to us as our advocate right now, maybe you're, you're in one of those times where you're knocked down. You've got a serious injury. You're down. You don't know what to do. You're like, how is Jesus my advocate right now? How does Jesus, the righteous one, our Savior, minister that fatherly advocacy within us? Well, as I usually say, I'm so glad you asked. Because the word for advocate in the Greek I mentioned prior, parakletos, that's used by John in 1 John 2, 1, and is translated advocate, is used in four other places in the New Testament. Only four all four of them by John, all four of them in the Upper Room Discourse. It's only used five total times, but four times not here, it's used in John's Gospel. And during the teachings of Jesus in the Upper Room for his disciples, before his betrayal, his trial, and his crucifixion, and his resurrection. These passages, and I'm going to read them to you, all four are translated from Parakletos into Counselor. In those texts. And it's interesting because as we're asking this question, how does God do this? How does God work this advocacy through Jesus in our lives? How is he with me? How is he powerfully present in these times of need when I'm struggling? Here's the word usage, the same word. In John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another parakletos paraclete counselor to be with you forever he is the spirit of truth john 14 verse 26 but the counselor the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name will teach you all things and remind you of everything i have told you john 15 26 when the counselor comes the one i will send to you from the father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will testify about me John 16, 7, nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Who is our advocate within us? Same word usage that John says, this is the ministry of Christ within you right now. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that lives within us. That is Jesus powerfully present within every heart of the church. That's how he is coming alongside us right now. When you are struggling, like, where's the Lord? I don't know where he is. Christian, he is within you. 
He is powerfully present in you, advocating with you, not just interceding the ministry of Christ who is sitting there at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us right now, but the Holy Spirit within us in partnership, working alongside the Trinity, God, oneness, wholeness together. He is advocating for you. He is right there with you in the midst of it. We are seeing the Godhead at work in our lives right here in the scriptures. It's a confirmation, church, that this is what we desperately need. Because if we don't think that we need this, we need to have our eyes opened. It's not enough for us to just have someone who's speaking on behalf of us, trying to bring us together. We have times in our lives where we need the Lord to come right alongside us and pick us up out of that junk. I don't know about you guys, but I need this. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is our comfort, our defender, present with us day by day, even in the darkest of our failures. He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, bringing us close to the Father, not only as time passes, but as we enter the throne room of grace through prayer. He's by our side saying, this one is mine. This one belongs to me. This little child is bought and paid for by my blood. Amen? That is the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ in our lives right now. Hallelujah. And we think we need something else. We think we need something else in our lives. Church, let us not be blind to the power of God that resides within you at this very moment. Not only the intercession, but the advocacy of Jesus. He states clearly to us, church, this little child is bought and paid for by my blood. Four, 1 John 2, 2, the next verse, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus is the only one who made atonement for our sin. He is the only one who can cleanse us from our sin. And not only has he done that, but by doing that, he is the only one who can advocate and intercede for us because he himself is righteous. He himself is worthy. The word that we would often hear in, in different translations of the Bible, propitiation, really is described in the word atoning sacrifice, given in our place took the wrath for sin upon himself. Within the sacrifice of Jesus, there is sufficient atonement for all who believe. He doesn't desire for any to perish. And it was at this point as I studied, I just started recalling different passages of Scripture where the Lord made it so clear that he longed for people to come to him, that he longed for people to worship him and to know him. Ezekiel 33, 10 through 11. Now as for you, the Lord is speaking here. Son of man, say to the house of Israel, you have said this, our transgressions and our sins are heavy on us and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we survive? Tell them as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. We, bet we ought to listen up. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? God says, I take no pleasure 
when wicked people perish. Turn and live. John 3, 16 and verse 17. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. God extends His hand of salvation. He extends the offer to be reconciled through Jesus. This is what our broken world needs. This is the gospel of truth that we need to remember and be reminded of. That Jesus loves us this much. Not only that He died, but that He is with us now. That He is not only speaking in our behalf because we belong to Him, but He's willing to come and to minister to us in our brokenness and in our lost state. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3-4, through 4, Paul writes to Timothy, says, This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God loves people. Do we? Do we love other people and do we love the lost enough to extend ourselves as far out as we possibly can to minister to them? Do we make serving others and being His word of truth in their lives a higher priority than many things that we prioritize like entertainment? Time alone. I'm not saying that time alone or entertainment in and of themselves is bad. But if we're not getting outside the four walls or the four corners of our property, we got an issue, guys. We need to get into this community, into this world, and we need to speak truth and love. We need to call people to come to Jesus because He loves them. F.W. Faber wrote in his hymn entitled, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. Boy, that's a cool title. Hymn's called the, the uh, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. He wrote, The love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind. The love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind. Throughout the Bible, there are displays of a salvation God has offered through Jesus whose arms are as wide as the world itself. Is that the proclamation of our lives? Is that what we are prioritizing as the message that we want to be remembered by? Would that be written on my headstone? When people walk by, would they see that as the declaration of my life that the love of God is broader than the measure of man's minds? And would it echo Romans 10.13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Jesus is a sacrifice for our sins. We have the opportunity this morning uh, to share communion together and to remember Him. And as we share in communion this morning, I, I want to remind us of a few things. Sometimes we take communion just because it's what we do in church. And that's not a bad thing that it's something that we make a priority that we routinely take together. And maybe you've taken communion a lot. 
Maybe if we added it up, we've taken communion thousands of times in our lives. But I want us to stop for a minute and consider why we take communion, why this is important. And the things that I want to point out are not exhaustive. There's many more reasons. But I want us to to notice this morning that communion is a family meal. Communion is something that we take as a family. As we take from one bread, which represents Jesus symbolically here, we're affirming that we're one body. Not only with him, but with each other. Communion brings us together. Communion is not just a reminder that, that Jesus sacrificed his body for us. It's a reminder that we are his body now. This is unifying. There is a unifying aspect to us taking communion as a church. Communion is not only a unifying thing, because it is something that we share and we share in Christ with him as our head, it's something that's not to be taken lightly. Communion shouldn't be something that we just throw a cracker down and down the juice and that's that. That's not what we're here to do. Communion should never be taken lightly. And Paul states this regarding the bread and the cup in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. He says, let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. He's talking about communion in that context. And he says, examine yourself. Make sure that your heart's right. He talks about that being a pretty serious thing. He says, some people have fallen ill because they're not taking this seriously. This is a unifying thing. It's representative of Jesus. And so as we take communion together this morning, I just want to do something really simple. Um, We're going to distribute communion to you. We're going to take it together as a church. And as we do that, before we take it together, and I'll walk us through that, before we do it, I want to encourage you guys to examine your hearts to examine your mind, to to go deep inside and and ask the Lord, show me. Is there something I'm holding back from you? Have I not confessed something? Is there sin in my heart? Do I have an issue with somebody, maybe even in this room, that I haven't moved past? Let's take a moment of examination. And I don't know about you guys, but it's a difficult thing to get my mind quiet. Let's discipline. Let's do that. Let's get quiet. Let's take this seriously. Let's examine ourselves. And as some can sing this song, as some are in prayer, let's just let this flow. And as the elements are handed out, I'm going to have the guys come forward that are going to distribute the elements for communion. And they will do that. And um, we'll walk through this together. But let's just take a moment to examine.